My name is Grant Oliphant, and this is We Can Be. We had this episode of our podcast ready to share as part of the launch of our third season. But when the world was hit with the coronavirus pandemic, we held on to those first episodes while we pivoted to bring you a special series focused on life amid COVID-19. Now, as we share these first episodes of season three, we're finding that the work of this week's guest, world-renowned environmental scientist, sustainability expert, and author, Jonathan Foley, is as vital as ever. As we learn more about the potential links between a warming planet and the spread of pandemics, his work takes on new urgency. We are honored to welcome Jonathan Foley to the podcast. At Project Drawdown, we focus on this time in the future when we solve the climate challenge. While we are facing some of the greatest challenges humanity's really ever faced when we think about the climate crisis, we also have the greatest opportunities, the greatest knowledge set, and the greatest toolbox ever in human history to address these kinds of challenges. Our guest today will likely make even our most accomplished listener feel like a bit of a slacker. Dr. Jonathan Foley is a world-renowned environmental scientist, sustainability expert, author, and public speaker who serves as executive director of Project Drawdown, billed as the world's leading resource for climate solutions. Through his leadership, Project Drawdown has taken the complicated and proven science behind the movement to address climate change and broken it down into a series of projects that seem, dare we say it, doable. He is clear that the challenge before us is not easy, and there are, as he says, no several bullets that will make it all okay. But he adds that if we combine all of the individual solutions together, we will have silver buckshot that can make a difference. Let's talk about that silver buckshot, as well as what he calls the secret weapon in the climate change battle, and the three things we can all do to save our planet. So, Jonathan Foley, thank you so much for being here today. Thanks for having me. You and I are talking to each other on the occasion of a climate action conference that the Heinz Endowments is hosting, which you've graciously agreed to come and speak to. The subject is what to do about the climate crisis that the planet faces and how one region can play a role in that. You're executive director of Project Drawdown. You head Mm -hmm. what is billed as, quote, the world's leading resource for climate solutions. But before we get to the solutions, you often have to dispel the notion that this problem is new. And (laughs) let's start there. When was climate change discovered? (laughs) Yeah, well, a long time ago. Well, the first reported scientific description of climate change or a greenhouse effect Mm -hmm. was by a guy named uh, Joseph Fourier in the 1820s. He was a French mathematician and physicist who figured out that, wow, the Earth is actually warmer than it should be if it weren't for our atmosphere. Mm. You know, our planet has always had a natural kind of greenhouse effect. Uh, So does Venus. So does Mars. Mm. Actually, most planets do. But it was then discovered later by a woman named uh, Eunice Foote. She actually published papers in the 1850s showing that adding CO2 to the atmosphere would warm the atmosphere, causing uh, kind of an enhanced greenhouse effect. Mm. And so this is going back to the 1820s to 1850s. And it's astonishing that in the 21st century, there are people still trying to debate this with you. Right, <laughs> you know, it's right. like, who, oh, by the way, you know, like to use their iPhone and, you know, modern scientific technological advances, but seem to deny the laws of thermodynamics. We hear the perpetual headline that 2014 is, has been the warmest year on record. You know what this is? 
it's a snowball, and that's just from outside here. So it's very, very cold out, very unseasonal. So here, Mr. President, catch this. Mm -hmm. There's that Gallup poll that came out last month, which found one in four Americans is skeptical of all the effects of climate change and thinks this issue's been exaggerated. Who gives a shit? That doesn't matter. You don't need people's opinions on a fact. We've been repeatedly asked, don't you want to leave a better earth for your grandchildren? And we've all collectively responded, eh, fuck them. That was John Oliver from last week tonight. It's stunning, actually, how to have this conversation with people who just don't believe the science, even though the science has been around for a long time. So roughly 200 years ago, we knew that this phenomenon of the potential to warm the planet existed. Mm -hmm. And when did we begin to realize, and more importantly, when did industry begin to realize that the man-made contribution to the climate was beginning to affect the climate itself. Well, the first um, kind of documented evidence that the planet was warming was actually in the early 20s, but in the 1930s, we started mm-hmm. to put two and two together, like, hey, not only is this theory saying that we add stuff to the atmosphere to warm up, gee, the thermometers are starting to show it. But really, what's relevant today is probably, I would say, in the 1960s and 70s, for sure. I know, and many of in the scientific community know, that Exxon was actually funding climate scientists very openly mm-hmm. uh, back in the 1970s, without any pressure on them at all. Just out of an innate interest in like, oh, what would happen if CO2 and other things went up in the atmosphere? What would happen to the planet? And some actually very, very good scientists were given just basic research grants by Exxon back in the 70s to do this work without any kind of hidden agenda. And they were free to publish it, and they did. And so for Exxon to pretend later, oh, like they didn't know or they didn't think the science is clear, is just nonsense. Mm-hmm. So industry has clearly known about this since at least the 1970s, if not longer. And uh, what's really disheartening is that some of those same companies went around and then funded kind of work to obfuscate and kind of dismiss the science to undermine the scientists themselves. ExxonMobil has long been criticized for allegedly hiding what it knew about climate change. Just today, a pair of researchers say that Exxon's own documents prove that is true. Dr. Hoffert, your work with Exxon was focused on the carbon cycle and climate modeling. I have a slide up here. So this was a model from 1982 with startlingly accurate projections into the present That's correct. So they knew. What do you think was going on for them? Because that was a fork in the road. They could have made a choice at that point to change the nature of their industry. They chose instead to, as the evidence seems to suggest, to obfuscate and to mislead and actually just to deny the concept of the science itself. Uh, You know, it's pretty hard to change something when, you know, your livelihood depends on doing what you're doing. And, And, you know, to be fair, too, you know, fossil fuels have made some major positive contributions to humanity. I mean, you know, we've powered our civilization with these things. I used to give my students a kind of an interesting essay question once about like, you know, hey, imagine there's a parallel universe with another version of Earth that's exactly the same. And the history of that planet was identical until about the 1850s. But on that Earth 2, let's say, we'll call it, there didn't happen to be any coal and oil or natural gas. There were no fossil fuels on that version of Earth how would the year 2019 be different? Mm. And of course, these students immediately, you know, jumped to the first conclusion was, oh, it'll be so much better, be this green utopia, no climate change. And then they stopped and said, oh, wait a minute. We probably would still have slavery. We would probably have wiped out the world's forest. Right. I mean, they're like, wow, this would be a mess, you know, in some ways. I'm not trying to give an apology for the fossil fuel industry, but, we, you know, I think we have to look at it. You know, this is uh, something that 
gave us a lot in modern kind of industrial society. We have to you know acknowledge that, but now we have to do better. This is such a key point, and I'm so glad you put it on the table because it is easy just to demonize fossil fuels in some sort of abstract, pure sense. Oh, gosh, but there yeah. is an argument, and I think you just made it, that we are sitting here today and uh, able to have this conversation about what comes next precisely because we had the burning of fossil fuels in the era mm-hmm. of fossil capitalism. Is it dangerous to admit that or is it necessary to admit that so we can think about the next stage? It's just the truth. Yeah, I mean, you know, I got here yesterday on a vehicle that's powered by a jet fuel, you know, and mm-hmm. there's no other way to do that. Fortunately, there will be technologies soon that can begin to replace that. And there are ways to make synthetic jet fuel from direct air capture. Mm. One of the best things we could do with direct air capture is suck CO2 out of the atmosphere and then turn it into a carbon neutral fuel mm. for things we can't replace with solar panels and windmills. And so synthetic uh, carbon-neutral, carbon-free jet fuels will have to be created, I think, or we just have to give up flying. And I don't see that as a good idea. I don't think we want to build a world where the only solutions to climate change are a massive sacrifice of what might seem a quality of life issue. I mean, the world's better when people travel and get to experience different cultures, get to collaborate and work together. If we can do it in a climate-responsible way, I'd like to see that happen. We have to just mature as a civilization and realize, you know, hey, it's time to phase out fossil fuels, even if we haven't run out of them, because there's a better way to do things. You know that old adage, um, like, you know, the Stone Age didn't end because we ran out of stones, right? Right. Right. (laughs) Well, here's another one where maybe the the, uh, fossil age will have to end because we need to do better. If you look at the 10 hottest years ever measured, they've all occurred in the last 14 years. And the hottest of all was 2005. From Paramount Classics comes a film that has shocked audiences everywhere they've seen it. The Arctic is experiencing faster melting. If this were to go, sea level worldwide would go up 20 feet. We have to act together to solve this global crisis. Our ability to live is what is at stake. The cultural conversation and political conversation about climate change. So it hit the mainstream vernacular, arguably, around the time of Al Gore's documentary An Inconvenient Truth, which was 2006. I'm just curious if you would talk about how you felt the public reacted at the time of that and what sort of impact you felt that that documentary had. On the positive side, of course, it created a lot more awareness of the climate problem. Not enough, in my opinion, about the solutions to climate change. We sometimes talk way too much about the doom and gloom and the problems mm-hmm. and how bad it's going to be. Not nearly a balance of, like, then what do we do about right, it? Right. But, yeah, on the positive side, it opened the conversation brilliantly. I think it made it very real, very human to people. It was very widely seen and discussed. Won an Academy Award, won a Grammy later. I mean, right. uh, not so bad. Nobel Peace Prize for Al Gore later, too, which yeah. is kind of amazing. <laughs> it's pretty hard. Uh, to, hard not to a bad be. consolation prize for not becoming president. Right, right. right. <laughs> <laughs> you know, but on the other hand, maybe because of the association with a political figure, it mm-hmm. might have further polarized this issue uh, inadvertently. Before this, Republicans were often very strong environmental leaders, even on climate change. You know, it's like uh, John McCain and, you know, well, of course, Senator Hines himself and yeah. others. Were, you know, there was a tradition of very strong Republican leadership on issues like climate change. The 2000s saw kind of a political polarization around environmental issues that hadn't really been the case before. Mm. The film envisioned a climate 
target for carbon dioxide, I guess, of about 350 parts per million. And I think you've commented that we're already beyond that. We're not likely to get back to it. Tell us a little bit about where we are on that trajectory, because I think there's still a myth that it's not too late to go back to where we were. Yeah, and that's the really depressing thing sometimes is that we've wasted essentially 40 years debating mm. the science and rather than talking about how we implement solutions. Mm. And the world is warmed. Our CO2 levels today um, in the atmosphere are about 415 parts per million, which is 50% more than the atmosphere has ever seen in 5 million years at mm. least. And uh, the temperature of the planet is at least a degree warmer than it's been during all of human civilization. That doesn't sound like a lot, but that's, you know, when your body gets a one or two degree fever, you just start to notice it mm -hmm. and it starts to be unhealthy. Three or four degrees, it starts to be very serious. Yeah. That's where we're headed. And so the idea that we can stop climate change, like, no, we've already have it. Mm -hmm. It's here today. The question now is how much worse do you let it get? Because every moment of delay means more damage. Mm -hmm. It's that simple. The equation here is delay equals damage, period. And sometimes we draw these lines in the sand saying like, well, at 1.5 degrees, that's when, you know, the stuff hits the fan and it's right. all going to go to hell. Or is it two degrees, which is kind of what we call dangerous interference with the climate system? Or is it three or four? And a lot mm -hmm. of times people ask me, well, if we cross one of those thresholds, do we just give up? Mm. I'm like, no, absolutely not. <laughs> yeah. There's a lot we can do and a lot we are doing, and we don't talk about it enough. Um, there is some good news still out there. There's a lot of good momentum to build on, not as much as we might like. But there are positive trends to see and to accelerate. And I think we should celebrate those and emphasize those and really focus on what is working and do a hell of a lot more of it yeah. fast. Yeah. The real basic infrastructure of the modern world that we've come to understand as permanent could be shaken in some very, very profound ways by the impacts that are coming. And it's possible that those impacts will be averted. It's possible that we'll organize and um, you know, cut our emissions and, and rebuild our infrastructure, rethink our agriculture in ways that allow us to avoid them. But if not, it's not easy to imagine the world that we know today surviving in a recognizable form in the coming decades. None of us are safe from climate change. All of us will be affected in the coming decades, and many of us in some very, very scary and dramatic ways. David Wallace Wells, the author of The Uninhabitable Earth, argues that we essentially have the tools that we need today to begin to correct this issue, mm -hmm. uh, that it really is a question of political will. He's not precisely, well, he's not optimistic about the ability and willingness of political systems to react in a timely fashion. Mm -hmm. Would you agree with that assessment? Whether you do or don't, where, where do you think we're headed in terms of likely climate change? So if we're a degree up already, mm -hmm. where are we likely to end up? Well, um, if I try to hazard a guess, I know I'll be wrong. Anybody who predicts the future is just setting themselves up to be wrong. It's an unfair uh, question. Yeah. Yeah, no, yeah. no, no, no. It's a great question because mm -hmm. a lot of people are willing to answer that question, and mm -hmm. I, I'm going to call BS on that mm -hmm. because, uh, you know, go back 30 years and ask somebody to try to predict what would happen to apartheid or what will right. happen to the Soviet Union yeah. or, or a Donald Trump getting elected. Everybody, oh, pff, you know, that's never going to happen. Mm -hmm. Or an African-American becoming president or gay marriage or whatever. You know, everything I was History told, is littered with our wrong guesses. Oh, yeah, absolutely. <laughs> no well, that's the good news, is uh, mm -hmm. everything I was told as a child that would be impossible yeah. not only ended up being possible, they were inevitable. So when people tell me, like, oh, climate change is impossible to solve, I'm like, bring it on. So we do have the tools to do this. Yeah, this is one area where David and I do agree. It's probably the only area we agree. He takes a very fatalistic view on climate change. There's definitely a lot to be uh, scared about. 
But I don't think it does us any good uh, mm-hmm. to feel that way. I think it's, we have to look at what we can do and go out and do it. Well, at Drawdown, we look at about 100 solutions mm-hmm. to climate change. We find, well, if we add them all together across multiple sectors like electricity, food and agriculture, industry, transportation, buildings, that's about 90% of the world's emissions come from just those five places. Right. Uh, that we have more than enough actually to solve the problem today. So this is, you know, possible, it's good for us, it's doable, and we just need to kind of get moving. The other good news is that the United States uh, is one of about 40 countries in the world that have already peaked their emissions, and they're going down. Mm-hmm. Uh, we hit peak emissions back in 2007. So it's kind of amazing. I, I see some good things happening out there. We just don't talk about them enough. I'm so grateful for your optimism. It really is an important uh, and much needed part of the whole climate conversation. As long as I've been familiar with this debate, there's been a really interesting issue looming over science, uh, uh, the science of climate change in particular, Mm -hmm. almost a (laughs) catch-22, where if you talk about the implications of the science, you're seen as being an advocate or partisan. And if you don't, you're dooming your science to be irrelevant from the one place where it really matters, which is the policy arena. Mm -hmm. On October 31st, 2018, an assembly of more than a thousand people gathered in Parliament Square to hear a declaration of rebellion. Extinction Rebellion, or XR, aims to force the UK government to declare a climate and ecological emergency. We demand our government protects our future generations. We demand they stop all destruction of our forests, our oceans and our wildlife. No argument. Oh, you want to know what XR demand? Here's what we demand. We demand that we are involved in the decision making. It's our futures too. We demand our governments reduce global carbon emissions to zero within 10 years. Yeah. 10 years. We demand they end any support for the fossil fuel economy and invest in a green economy. Uh, Recently in the UK, a whole group of, I think, 1,400 scientists signed uh, uh, onto a thing called the Extinction Rebellion. And so we're beginning to see a rebellion by science against the the muzzling of its own voice. Do you support that? Well, I'm a citizen first of this planet and a scientist second, you know, and human being above all else, I guess. So, you know, I think there's a moral obligation to this generational compact that we have. We inherited a world that was built by our ancestors and we owe them everything, but we owe even more to our descendants. Mm. So, you know, I think it's very, very important for scientists to be engaged in civic affairs. With that said, I actually have a real problem with the Extinction Rebellion. They're making a lot of claims about climate change that are absolutely fabricated, have nothing to do with the science, and they're, they're, they're on the opposite extreme of, you know, kind of hyperventilating the science of, you know, we're all going to die right. with zero scientific evidence. I don't think that's a particularly good example of science engaging the world as that particular civic movement. I think it's one that's actually a little bit irresponsible. Who are your heroes then in terms of speaking out? And that sounds such cliche, but I really, really do admire Greta Thunberg. For more than 30 years, the science has been crystal clear. How dare you continue to look away and come here saying that you're doing enough when the politics and solutions needed are still nowhere in sight. You say you hear us and that you understand the urgency. But no matter how sad and angry I am, I do not want to believe that. Because if you really understood the situation and still kept on failing to act, 
then you would be evil, and that I refuse to believe. Finally, finally, after 30 years, I mean, we've had lots of people who wanted to be the messiah for climate change or, you know, the the advocate, the, the voice we all listen to, and one after the other after the other go forward. And, I, you know, I love Bill McKibben, I love Naomi Klein, whatever, but none of them, no one has the same moral authority as a young child right. who can look right. you in the eye and say, you are failing right. your job as an ancestor. You know, you're failing your children around the world mm-hmm. and look adults in the eye. And that's one thing I love is the completely morally unambiguous position she has. Right. Like there's right. no debating this, right. you know, like, and she's right. She has an absolute moral authority. She's also been very smart about keeping her message, you know, relatively focused, very clean, very simple and engaging other youth around the world to really be out there and talking about this issue. I think it's beautiful. I mean, that, that's something that's truly different. I've been kind of wondering, when will climate change have that equivalence to like civil rights or mm-hmm. the anti-apartheid movement of like a morally unimpeachable voice? Yeah, kind of, there's something crystalline about her approach. I worry a lot that the environmental community and on climate change is skewing very, very, very left mm-hmm. in the United States and Europe right now. and. That's fine. That happens to agree with some of my personal politics, but that doesn't matter. What I worry is it leaves behind a whole bunch of other folks. Mm. We cannot afford to put the planet in the middle of a culture war like we have in this country now. We just cannot possibly afford that. We can't do that. Mm. And so I do worry about uh, approaches to climate change that are either very left-wing or very right-wing. We don't need any wings here. Right. It shouldn't, well, it, shouldn't, it shouldn't be partisan, but it's amazing to me how quickly it gets dressed up as partisan. So, you know, let's talk about how this dynamic plays out in a region like you're sitting in. You know, mm-hmm. southwestern Pennsylvania, part of, of an area of Appalachia that has historically depended on natural resources and the exploitation of them mm-hmm. for its economic growth, uh, has a strong industrial heritage. And there are plenty of people in our community right now who are saying we're sitting on top of a sea of natural gas, one of one of the greatest treasure troves in the history of the planet. And you're saying we shouldn't exploit it. That's crazy. They'll call it political. They'll call it leftist to say that it shouldn't be exploited. And they'll argue that we're being completely unrealistic to suggest that that gas shouldn't come out of the ground. What's the middle ground approach to countering that argument? How would you counsel southwestern Pennsylvania to view this moment in its history? Well, it's an incredibly difficult challenge. I mean, I just mm-hmm. I, I don't think any one voice is going to carry the day here at all. And mm-hmm. I think that's the first message right there saying, hey, we, we might have to you know, find some reconciliation of these different points of view that, you know, it shouldn't be just one voice carrying the day for everyone, mm-hmm. uh, whether it's an environmentalist or, you know, the fossil fuel industry, they have to listen to each other here. But at the end of the day, um, for someone like me is looking down the barrel of you know, the fossil fuel gun here saying, hey, mm-hmm. In the not too distant future, in fact, in the very near future, we're going to have to like turn all this stuff off. Mm-hmm. It's hard to reconcile what I happen to know and what you know about climate change with that economic proposition. But I have to. I think it's really important for people in the environmental community to really put themselves in the shoes of these other folks and right. and, and really hear them and um, have empathy for that point of view. Right. I don't know. My mother used to say something like, you know, you're, we're born with two ears and one mouth. Try to use them in that ratio. <laughs> <laughs> I love that. I love that. Uh, yeah, well, I, I've struggled my life trying to do that. Um, yeah. You have actually spoken extensively and written extensively about how we need to think about more than energy, including a 
peaceandmedium.com titled Farming Our Way Out of the Climate Crisis. So you've talked a lot about the role land use and agriculture mm-hmm, play. Mm-hmm. Tell us a little bit about why that's important. Yeah, well, it turns out that uh, CO2 is just one of the gases that ends up in the atmosphere that traps heat. Mm-hmm. Uh, most of them occur naturally, but we humans are adding more and more of this stuff to the atmosphere than nature would normally do. And it's also more than just energy. It turns out if you take all the things we do under the big uh, aegis of energy, whether it's making electricity or transportation or buildings or industry, the main energy sectors, you add them all up globally, uh, 62% of climate change comes from fossil fuels making CO2 into the air. About 40% of it is other things Mm. that have nothing to do with uh, fossil fuels making CO2. Agriculture, which is like deforestation in places like the Amazon or Indonesia, burning uh, coal is like burning trees. They're the same thing. Burning carbon, you make CO2. So burning forest is about 10% of climate change right there. Also, um, animal agriculture releases methane into the atmosphere, just like natural gas wells do, so do cattle. (laughs) By the way, cattle burp methane um, more than they go the other end. (laughs) uh, Well, there goes a myth. Yeah, I know. Science is always myth-busting. We're we're ruining everybody's day since 1610. (laughs) And the other is nitrous oxide, which comes from overusing fertilizer. Mm -hmm. So if you look at agriculture, all told, agriculture is about 24% of the world's climate change right now. Mm -hmm. That's the same basically as all the world's electricity, which is 25%. And yet electricity gets all the attention. So it's it's complicated. Um, Basically, climate change comes from electricity, food, transportation, industry, and buildings. Just think of those five things. That's 90% of the problem. That mix will depend on where you are, uh, Mm -hmm. how much is electricity versus buildings versus transport versus food and ag. The good news is we have a lot of solutions there. You've organized or identified the 100 solutions that Mm -hmm. you think we can do now Mm -hmm. based on the science and organized them into seven easy-to-process sort of approaches. And is your hope that individuals will pick up this approach and look online about it, or is it targeted at policymakers? In the first version of Drawdown, I just joined the organization about a year ago, mm-hmm. and a lot of the work people know about it happened before my time there. Basically, they're trying to answer a simple question like, hey, do we have enough on the table right now to solve climate change or don't we? Right. And amazingly, nobody had answered that question before very satisfactorily. This group of, it wasn't a bunch of scientists. It wasn't a bunch of you know UN officials. It was a bunch of like entrepreneurs and environmentalists who got together and wrote this book. About 100 people were involved in the research behind it, mostly grad students and postdocs around the country, around the world, really. Synthesized, what did we know about 100 different climate solutions? Just summarizing what was already known out there about Mm -hmm. the size of the solution and how much it might cost. Added it up and said, wow, guess what? We do have enough. Mm -hmm. If we look beyond our narrow lens of just one or two solutions, we look at like dozens. We have enough to solve the problem today. Now, in Drawdown kind of 2.0, since I've joined the organization, we're now moving to, like, how do we help the world implement these solutions? Let's move beyond just describing their theoretical existence to, now, how do we do it? So we're updating all the solutions again with the latest science and the latest thing, but we're also drawing them down to particular regions. Like the first version, we looked at the globe as a whole. 
Uh, now we're some, we, you know, we were building the capacity to say, well, let's build a solution set just for Pennsylvania, for example, which would be different than the world's average right. and maybe different than here's one for Washington state. Very different kinds of solutions. We're basically focusing on communities, not D.C. We want to work with places like Pittsburgh. We want to work with where governance is still working, right. which is at the city and state level in this country and, and actually a lot of the world. I ask you, how do we get our community to work together as one? If we start to look at this issue from a bottom-up approach, the problem doesn't seem so big. We must be able to be a part of what is probably the greatest economic investment that we will see in our lifetime in renewable energy, green tech, and the ability to transform our environment in the process. Let me be the first politician to say publicly, I oppose any additional petrochemical companies coming to Western Pennsylvania. We need clean air, we need clean water, we have turned the corner economically into a whole different era. And I want to see that era continue into Connellsville, into Uniontown. I want to see it happening in Morgantown and in Steubenville. I want to see that opportunity there for all of the people around. That was Mayor Bill Peduto at Pittsburgh's Climate Action Summit in October of 2019. A lot of the decision-making on climate change actually happens at the local level always. Right. You know, you have a public utility commission for your region, the people who decide what kind of buses you have, or if you're going to build the light rail or not, or the density of housing, or these kinds mm -hmm. of things. That's mainly a local decision. Right. It's not Washington. So we need to work at the local scale and kind of innovate there, but also the state scale. Um, California and New York states now have legal requirements for climate action that are uh, bolder than about any country in the world. Mm. And California and New York, just those two states alone, are 25% of the U.S. economy. That's pretty amazing. And uh, we also want to work with businesses. We want to work with investors. And we're also interested in working with philanthropy. Those are four levers we think we can affect change in. Your list includes education of girls as yes. playing a critical role in making this transition. Why is that on the list? Yeah, there are two solutions that are kind of linked here. One is universal access to family planning, mm -hmm. and the other is universal access to education, uh, primarily, though, for girls and young women who are by far the most neglected by the world's education system mm -hmm. sometimes. Both of those have the immediate effect, of course, the simple mathematical effect of lowering the future rise of global population. Nobody should ever use the words population and control in the same sentence ever again. That should never be uttered. Mm. And so it should be about how do you give people who've been disenfranchised more health care mm. and more education? And guess what? When you do that, women will have fewer and healthier children later in life and live better lives themselves. Mm. And that has kind of the overall benefit of having fewer people in the world in the future that will be contributing to the issues we have. So it's not just our carbon footprint. It is also the number of feet uh, mm -hmm. <laughs> that have a footprint. That's the simple math version of why mm -hmm. that's important. But I think more importantly is the uh, unleashing of innovation and solutions as well. You know, we're talking about half of the world's IQ points suddenly getting, you know, engaged more and more and more. And, and anytime society needs to make a big dramatic change from one way of doing things to a new way of doing things, 
it's probably wise to listen to the voices that haven't had as much of a platform before. Yeah. That's one of the things that we're trying to point out, that it's not just uh, dealing with equity to make amends for damages. Equity is a good strategy for solving problems. It turns out when you have more diverse voices from more diverse points of view and more different experiences, time and time and time again, you find they solve problems better. Mm. Let's you know unleash the creativity and the power of everyone to solve a problem that touches everyone. That's the only way to go. Mm. One of the things we do here, though, is that an option might be a carbon tax that would drive a change of behavior and a change in innovation. We also hear as a completely different sort of neutralish idea that we should focus on technology like decarbonization technology that many have characterized as still a fantasy, but something that if we could do at scale could help solve the problem. Are these real solutions or are they just ways of not actually dealing with the problem? A carbon tax only works for climate change if it disincentivizes enough mm. using carbon fuels. And that means it'd have to be a very large tax. And that means some people are going to be very unhappy with it, mm. and it's going to hit people's pocketbooks. If it's too small a tax, it just if it's like a nickel on a gallon of gas or something like that, right. which you know might be an acceptable carbon tax, okay, that's not going to stop people from burning right. a gallon of gas at all. Right. People still buy SUVs knowing they're going to burn twice as much gas as they would if they bought a you know a Prius or something. So I, I worry about the disincentive pricing scheme. It'd have to be a very large carbon tax to really affect people's pocketbooks, and no politician in this country is going to vote for that. Right. A tax and a policy isn't a solution. Mm-hmm. It's a tax and it's a policy. That's why in Drawdown we call solutions things that materially actually change the level of CO2 in right. the air. There's a physical, chemical, right. measurable impact. Signing a bill, implementing a tax doesn't do that yet, but it might accelerate the development mm-hmm. of those solutions. So I think it actually is very, very important to invest in like R&D. I think we do need um, things to, you know, that tilt the scales. Mm-hmm. The other kind of thing of, you know, like the uh, carbon, ca- I mean, you were mentioning carbon like capture. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, well, there's, there's uh, technological based platforms to do that, like direct air capture, things that, you know, suck CO2 out of the air with machines, which are really only on pilot scale right now. Uh, and they require a lot of energy to use. Uh, so how would you power them? Right. Uh, would it be solar, nuclear, other fossil fuels to mm. capture CO2? That's kind of ironic, but you, know, you could. <laughs> right. Perpetual motion machine. Well, you know, yeah. you, the math is right now, I think yeah. the, there's a company in Canada that was saying, well, we could use you know one unit of natural gas so it would capture the equivalent of two units of natural gas emissions. It's like, well, okay. But mm. if you could power it somewhere else. But the, the scale of having to do that is enormous. Mm. But the, the first job, though, is to lower emissions. And half the job in the U.S. anyways energy efficiency, by the way. Mm. I say this all the time. It's like, you know, it's not meant to be insulting or anything, but half of solving climate change is like, stop being stupid. (laughs) You know, really, I mean, look at the average American household and say, like, what on earth are we doing? Because, like, we use about two to three times more energy than the average German Mm. family, yet the quality of life is no different or better. Mm. Theirs might be slightly better. A lot of it is energy inefficiency at the home scale. It's old houses that are not insulated or weather stripped. You know, they're old furnaces that are not tuned up very well. Driving gigantic vehicles we don't need mm-hmm. very, very far because we live in the suburbs. I mean, there's a lot of stuff that we could just stop doing, doing. dumb things. Mm-hmm. Or in the ag sector, the biggest solution there is actually food waste. A third of the food grown on the planet is wasted, mm-hmm. and uh, that's not doing anybody any good at all. It's not just having solar and wind and organic farming and all that stuff. That would be great, but we could also just cut half the problem away by being a little bit more mindful mm-hmm. of the resources we use now, regardless of how they're produced. Right. 
I don't know why that doesn't get more attention. It's just not as sexy as debating nuclear versus solar versus right. natural right. capital. Like, right. Could we agree to insulate the attic, yeah. please? You know, like, come on. <laughs> right. you know, like, so I, I find these low-hanging fruits still irritatingly right in front of us sometimes. Well, it's funny because it feels very 1970s to me. Oh, you know? I know. It's, it's, yeah, it's, everybody but brings up but Jimmy Carter yeah, and, yeah, yeah, <laughs> and his sweaters. And, you know. The old solutions are sometimes the best. Yeah. Jonathan, you've said it can be done, but the only real question is, will we? In your gut, do you think we will? Yeah. I do. Mm. I think we're going to have more damage. It's going to get worse before it gets better because that's the inevitable delay of our economy, the infrastructure, and the physics of our planet is that we can't turn on a dime. Mm. But we're beginning to slowly turn. You know, the first uh, inklings of this change are beginning to happen. Again, 40 countries out of 200 have already peaked emissions have gone down. We've gone down about 15% since our peak in 2007 in the United States. And the economy and the population of the country have grown since that time a lot, actually, especially the economy. Other countries are doing this as well, um, not as fast as we need, but it's the beginning Mm -hmm. of this. We have all the solutions we need. I think there's a growing awareness, partly because of the science, partly because of good education, but mostly because of Mother Nature mm-hmm. <laughs> smacking us in the face a lot, saying, hey, wait a minute, this stuff's getting real. I mean, you want to convince uh, rural folks in Pennsylvania about climate change, just look out the window. You know, you don't right. need to hear from people like me or something. Right. They, people know something's right. going on. And so I think this will hit a tipping point where we will drastically and quite quickly pivot to a a better system. And the good news is that every seed we plant now will germinate later. I mean, it was just we have to do the slow, agonizing, depressing work of working against this system that doesn't seem like it's going to tip, but we know it will. And um, we just have to have faith in that. The future is still being written. It's still left for grabs. Nobody's made it yet. Uh, We get to do that. And that's where our life's work should be. It's powerful. The name of this program is We Can Be. Uh, (laughs) How would you end that sentence? We as a community or as a country can be what? Oh, that's a great, great question. I think we can be great ancestors like the ones who came before us. Love it. Jonathan Foley, thank you so much for being with us. Well, thank you so much. Thanks. Jonathan dismissed the, quote, question of whether climate change is real or not. It is the truth, he said, period. Mother Nature is slapping us in the face. With that in mind, perhaps what surprised me most about my conversation with Jonathan is the hopefulness that he has for our future. He has access to the most scientifically sound data about climate change known to humankind, and he understands that science. And despite all of that science telling us that we are at an extremely critical juncture, he is hopeful. And his brilliance is the way he breaks down what seems like an impossible challenge and makes it accessible to and doable by all of us. Let's join him in staying hopeful and in doing our part in creating the collective silver buckshot that can attack the challenge of climate change head on.